Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, <clears throat> chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. I'll be reading chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a holy kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Father, I pray that by the power of of your Holy Spirit that the tool of your written word of this passage will produce in us your people the obedience to be sober minded to be watchful to resist what Satan wants to do to each one of us. To the glory of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. At the end of the letter here, Peter is crystal clear in his final send-off greeting. Just think about, okay, why does he say that? He's wrapping it up. We've been in this letter for a year. And he says, this, what, what you've read, that is the, and he modifies it, the true grace of God. Seems to be, and we certainly know from the first century in Paul's dealings, there are, twisted Gospels of Jesus Christ. And Peter's saying, what I've written here, as I've laid out these, he wouldn't say five chapters, but we do now, he says, this is the true grace of God. It is the grace and the way God is 
saving persons. And so, right before that, what he did again, and we will look at this morning in verses 8 to 11, is he he just summarized the entire epistle, essentially, I think, again. (laughs) This is it. This This is your life, if you're a Christian. I wonder if you look at your life the way that John Bunyan pictures the Christian life. John Bunyan, he was a tinker. In other words, he was a handyman in the 1600s in England. And he was converted as an adult. And boy, was he ever gifted. And he had a picture of the Christian life that I think he got from the Bible, and he wrote an allegorical story which is one of the best-selling and most-read books in human history called The Pilgrim's Progress. I wonder if you look at your life as a Christian, the way he pictures the life of one of his characters named Christian. I wonder if you picture the financial stresses you go through, sicknesses, loss of loved ones, children going astray. Out of the blue, again and again, something seems to happen that knocks your heart and affections towards Christ off kilter. In the Pilgrim's Progress, what we have in the first part of that book is there's Christian. He's, he's, something has changed his life. And he is now on the king's highway. This is what Bunyan saying. He got born again. And he's not to heaven yet. And so he's on the road. He's on the king's highway to the celestial city. And there's a portion in the book where he, thank goodness, because of Christian fellowship, he met up with another Christian buddy named Hopeful. But on the king's highway are constant signs of where to go and which way to turn and which way not to turn. And there is danger all around. And one day, Christian and hopeful just kind of strayed from the path. And then a massive, huge giant came out of the woods and grabbed them by the nap of the neck and dragged them to his doubting castle and threw them in the dungeon and beat the living daylights out of them and came back the next day and beat the living daylights out of them bloody. They came back and giant despair was his name said, just kill yourselves. Get it over with. It ain't going to stop. And it sounded like a good idea. Until Hopeful remembered the Lord of the kingdom to which we're headed said, don't take your own life. And there's a command. And hope arose. And and then there was one night from midnight to sunup, Hopeful and Christian in the dungeon of Doubting Castle prayed all those hours and then something wonderful happened and I pick up the way Bunyan says it now a little before it was day good Christian is one half amazed broke out in a passionate speech 
What a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news, good brother. Pluck it out of your bosom and try. He did. And they escaped from giant despair and his doubting castle. There's only one escape. And that is to take God's Word and His promises and let them live in the bosom of our being. And when you need them, you take them out. That's what the letter of 1 Peter for this last 12 months has been about. It's about encouragement on how to live by faith. How to live by hope in the midst of giant despair. In the midst of pain and trials and grief and suffering and setbacks and turns in the road that you never expected. And so now at the end of the letter, Peter in verses 8 to 11, he summarizes it again. And here's the overview of it. In verse 8, he gives to us believers a twofold command Be sober minded, be watchful, be, be alert, be alert because what's, life is painful and it's serious. And so he says, you have to watch for the stuff that happens on the king's highway of your life as a Christian. Then in the second half of verse 8, he gives the reason why we are to be vigilant, on the lookout, eyes wide open, how come? Because, see the middle of verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Peter gives this vivid picture of Satan as a strong, vicious, roaring lion who is waiting to pounce on every one of you. And chew you up. Then, because of the lion, verse 9 says, Be awake, see him, and resist him firm in your faith. Here's the flow. Because you know something. Knowledge here is really important to resisting the purposes of Satan for your life. Let me just read the text again, see if you see it. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing. That's how you do it. Knowing 
that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then finally in verses 10 and 11, he gives us a deep assurance on the king's highway, saying, Believer, are you, are you a, a Christian or a helpful? You are going to make it. He plants that promise in the bosom of all those who are His. You can see it in verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be Dominion forever and ever. That's our text as we close this letter. And it's gloriously hope-filling. So, let's look at it closer. The devil, in this text, uses this analogy, is described here as a roaring lion. And he's hungry to devour Christians. Think about that. The picture that he gives here is different than other pictures we see of Satan as a snake, he's cunning, an angel of light, a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing, and his ways at times can be very tricky. That, that's not how he describes him here. He says, Satan is out front. He, he's right in the middle of the road. He doesn't hide here. He doesn't need to hide because he is a roaring, hungry lion. And that's been the point of the book of First Peter. It's not... The tricky stuff of Satan that mainly he's been dealing with. It's, it's the blatant reality of what Satan represents to these people and to you that he's talking about. See, it's one thing to be, I think, I think it was Lindsay, my daughter, on a camping trip we were riding down on our bicycles through a dirt road and lo and behold, before I knew it, I, there was a rattlesnake. I just went by and I told her to stop. When you see a Satan as a snake, you can be aware, you can get strategies, you can say, okay, there he is, and we'll go around. If you encounter a roaring lion on an African prairie, it doesn't matter. You're dead. You're gone. Unless you have the bullets of knowledge. In the grace of God. Unless knowing something, the text says. That's been Peter's point. That the lion is in this letter and in Christians' lives overpowering. It's just too overpowering for us. So, how? How is it in, in, in this passage, how is the devil 
overpowering to the Christian life. What is that power? It's right there in verse 9. Just read it. Resist Him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He just clearly said, the reason and to the extent that Satan as a roaring lion who's hungry to devour you is overpowering, it's because that roaring lion is the suffering of Christians. That's what he just said. Resist him knowing what? Resist the roaring lion because you know something. You know that the same sufferings that I'm going through, you're not the only one. It just seems to be so crystal clear that that's what the roaring lion represents in the text. Christians everywhere throughout the world, Peter says, this is your life. Right now, down here, during this age. And therefore, the roaring lion in this passage is the suffering, the pain, the heartache, the things that make you cry and grieve and get anxious. It is the suffering of Christians which is designed by Satan to devour you. Listen to how Jesus said this. After His resurrection and ascension in the book of Revelation, Jesus has some things to say to the churches. And He says to the church, it's Smyrna in chapter 2 verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Jesus, you conquered death. You conquered sin. You have been raised from the dead and ascended on high. And now, 60 years later, after your resurrection, you're speaking to us, the church here in this little city of Smyrna, and you're saying, after we suffer, O Sovereign Lord, yes, do not fear what you are about suffer. Behold, the devil here it is. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. So, Jesus says, Christians, in the church of Smyrna, He's going to cast some of you into prison and some of you will be killed. But, as Peter says it, stand firm in the faith. Be, as Jesus says it, be faithful unto death. Which, which means... 
in an overall biblical theology. Satan cannot, Christian, harm you ultimately. He can't really kill you eternally. He can only bring crud into your life down here now. The point of Jesus, the point of all the Gospels, the point of Paul, and the point of 1 Peter for the last year, and clearly in verses 8 to 11, is that the battle is secured and it is won not by avoiding persecution, pain, setbacks, and all the other unpleasant trees of life, but it is by persevering in faith through them. So, in the context here, it's clear that the roaring lion is the direct attack of Satan with his sufferings, his pains, trials, and that the He's like a roaring lion here. So the hardest thing about a lion which is overpowering is simply that. The hardest thing about suffering is that it just overwhelms us. It's not tricky. It's not his cunning. It just beats you down and can overwhelm your hope in your faith and can drag you into doubting castles and pummel you and beat the snot out of you every day as giant despair has control of your life. That is Satan's goal. That's why Peter describes him here as a roaring, hungry, devouring lion. Satan's purpose in suffering, trials, pain, is to destroy your faith, your trust in God. That's why persecution comes. That's why sometimes you get stabbed in the back by a close person that was close to you. That's why the overwhelming pain of loss in life, sickness of loved ones or yourself comes Satan is there to destroy your faith in God. That's why the job loss. That's why the financial reversals. That's what he's saying. And it's overwhelming. He's growling in it. Now, here's the big question. Joe, we're in 1 Peter. And for a year... But there's some things that seem to be pretty clear here. And so, here's the question. Isn't God ultimately sovereign over all things, including our suffering? The answer is yes, He is. We've seen this in First Peter. For instance, just in chapter 3, Verse 17, for it is better to suffer 
For doing good, if that should be God's will, than it is for doing evil. It is better to suffer, and he just feels this need to put it in there. If that is God's will. They need to do that. He's trying to tell believers that even when you're following Christ, and that brings suffering, if it's God's will, the if it's God's will cannot mean if you are following Christ or doing good. It has to mean if you suffer. Or in chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, he said, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now why? Where's your foundation, Peter? It is here. Because it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And he attributes suffering in some senses. You can go back to that if you want to know what I think it means. But in some sense, to God and His judgment. So, In other words, for Peter, the suffering of Christians in this age, in this world of tears and trials and pain and death, is the purifying tool in the hands of a loving Heavenly Father. Flip back to chapter 1. He was crystal clear about this. Start with verse 6. Peter wrote, In this, the, the glorious promises of the Gospel that lay at the end of the King's Highway in the Celestial City. That's what he said right before this, essentially. In this you rejoice. And then he talks about the king's highway. Even though now, for a little while, since it's necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Don't miss the next two words. So that. That's a purpose. And trust me, that is not Satan's purpose of what he's going to say. He's not out for your good. He's out to devour you. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your Faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though gold is tested by fire and we purify it, so that God does the same thing. So that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the end of the king's highway. At the revelation, unveiling, second coming of Jesus Christ. So their pain and Real crying and real grief. That's what he says. Even though now for a little while you have been grieved by all kinds of stuff. That's what trials means. And he says here it is the refiner's fire. That's why the purpose clause. It's God's purpose. It's not Satan's But now, come to the end of the letter in chapter 5, in our text this morning, Peter says the suffering is Satan's attack. With his purpose 
to devour you. So which is it? Is it his purifying, the purifying power of a loving, caring, heavenly Father? Or is it the jaws of a hungry lion who wants to eat you up and destroy you? The answer is both. It's just both. And, and this is not new with Peter in the Bible. The book of Job is clear. We get to look in, and God lets us do it on purpose. Job doesn't, but we see, before anything happens to Job, Satan, it's one of the few times Satan, and that word is used in the Old Testament, Satan, who's, who hates God, and wants to prove Job's faith is false, has a conversation with the Sovereign One, and asks permission to do some stuff. We get to look in on that. Okay. Job doesn't. All he knows is his life just fell apart. And you talk about grief. I don't think any of us in here can relate to the suffering of Job at this point. There are humans who can. I don't think to the extent we can. And there was a roaring lion in his path. Satan couldn't do it without the sovereign permission. And then after the, the two big trials of Job, both times God has the writer say, Job said, the Lord is given and the Lord took away. And we want to say, no, 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 you don't get it. We got to see Satan did it. But then the text says, both times, in case we miss it, with saying this, Job did not sin with his lips in it. Or, like I say, so it's there in Job, the Apostle Paul has the same theology. Paul, which is it? Is it Satan who's there to destroy the faith of Christians? Or is it a tool in the hands of a loving, loving, eternally loving Heavenly Father? Well, if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm sorry, if you click to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, <clears throat> after he's just talked about, he does have a special, unique place in human history as an apostle and much abnormal stuff because he is an apostle who has encountered and been encountered by the resurrected Jesus like none of you have nor I and been commissioned as his personal sent one for the foundation of the church and he says you know that can make a person pretty proud he knows it and we pick up he says verse 7 so in order, here's the purpose, so to, that means here's purpose, so to, in order to keep me from becoming conceited. 
sinfully proud. Because of what? The surpassing greatness of the revelations that were given to me. What happened? In order to keep me from that sinful conceit, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me in order to keep me from becoming conceited. So, the thorn in the flesh, he says clearly, doesn't he? Had a purpose. And its purpose was for my good. Okay. That was not Satan's purpose. That, that, that was not the messenger who came from Satan. It was not his purpose. Here to help you, Paul. Yet Paul didn't balk to call it a messenger of Satan. The point is, if God is actually sovereign over all, what we're going to see in verse 11, has dominion over all. If God is actually sovereign over all things, including Satan, which He is, then God has a different purpose in the same event than Satan or demons or sinful human beings do. All you have to do is stop and think about the centrality of all of human life. The cross of Jesus Christ. Satan entered Judas. Judas is a fallen sinful being. Betrayed. Sinned against. Meant it for evil. The Sanhedrin as a whole. The Gentiles represented by Pilate. All sinned. We're doing Satan's bidding. And Satan was not purposefully out to glorify God. And so, Peter, how do you deal with that? Well, in his first sermon... Recorded in the book of Acts, in the middle of the sermon, in the middle of his evangelistic sermon, he says in Acts 2.23, But this Jesus who was delivered up, I mean to the cross, to be killed, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of sinful men. Boy, that's a paradigm shift. It's the same point in it with the story of Joseph and the way the book of Genesis ends. Don't, it didn't get his brothers off the hook. They meant evil against him by throwing him in a pit and getting rid of him because they hated his guts. Their culpability and sin before God, this does not get them off the hook. When many years later, Joseph does say concerning the exact same events, what you meant 
purposed for evil, God, that thing also purposed for good. So when Christians suffer, the devil designs it in order to destroy your faith. But in that same experience, God's design is sovereignly constructive, sanctifying, purifying, bringing about holiness to deepen faith. One more big question then in the light of that. In this text, the first Peter five, eight to eleven, does the lion have teeth? Or have his teeth been pulled? Because I've heard it taught that way over thirty years of Christianity numbers of times. Oh, he can just gums when he opens his mouth. Oh, in other words, don't take it too seriously. I mean, you may be in a battle, it's a war, but it's kind of like a pretend war. So, I mean, the question, in other words, is this. As we read the text and he says, be awake, be vigilant, your adversary, you have an enemy. He is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Can Christians be devoured? That's the question the text raises. It says here, the devil's goal is to devour. That word does not mean to just bug you. It means he's hungry and he wants to chew you up and swallow you whole. I mean, it's what devour means. I, so, as he uses the analogy, I don't think that Peter here could mean anything less then He wants to bring you to ultimate, eternal ruin. And so Peter says, this is the reason, Christian, it's the reason we are to resist, put up, struggle against Him. He says, we are to resist Him. Look at the text. Firm in your faith. I think that's got to mean don't let Him devour your faith in your suffering. So it just goes back to the question, well, should we really take it that serious? Or is it really this battle more like a paintball war? I played paintball war one time in Malibu Hills, and the adrenaline does flow, and you take it pretty seriously. But you know, before I started, I knew I was going home. I, I don't think it was quite the analogy of our guys over in Afghanistan right now where body bags are real. This is a real war. 
there are real body bags. It's not pretend, and it's not paintball. And heaven and hell are at stake. This passage is serious. This is why John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, because he knew how serious it is. Jesus knows it. Paul knows it. That the gospel coming into the world produces all kinds of stuff. The kingdom of God is preached. And it produces the church and local churches and people and professing Christians. And the Bible knows, and John Bunyan knew, that not all who become church members, not all who profess Christ, will be saved. It's a real war. Jesus says it this way in Matthew. Chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. The four soils. He said, this is what I mean. The gospel goes and it does stuff to people. Okay? And you get the first three soils and then you got the one true born again soil at the end. In verses 20 to 21, Jesus says, for, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this human heart, this is the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. But, but he endures for some set period of time. And when tribulation and persecution, insert, roaring lion arises on account of the word, Immediately, he falls away. <clears throat> the war for every person who professes faith in Christ is real. Let me now ask the question a little differently. Can genuine Christians, by that I'll just use Peter's words, the way he started off the body of this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again unto producing a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, reserved and kept in heaven for you. Can those people in this war, be killed ultimately or lose their salvation. Is it possible for a real Christian, a born-again person to be devoured by the lion and not be saved? No, it's not. They cannot be lost. Why? Look at the text. Because true, or genuine believers, born again persons, resist the devil. Firm in the faith. That's what they do. That's the meaning of being born again. Of being indwelt by God 
the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit lives in them. And in the midst of real pain and trials and being thrown into doubt. In Doubting Castle. And acting in ways that show you don't trust Him. They eventually pull out from their bosom. And they go on the King's Highway. The Holy Spirit is trustworthy in moving them in the battle to fight, to resist, and they will ultimately make it. He moves us to fight, to be sober-minded, to be alert for the devil. For the devil's purposes in the roaring lion of life when it brings stuff you don't think you can handle which you can't without his promises remember how Peter said it in chapter 1 verse 5 okay, this is again this is Peter's theology I didn't make it up 1 5 you who by God's power don't miss it. You who by God's power are being, think about the roaring lion, are being guarded, protected through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So, if God says that He will keep us eternally secure by His power through faith, then it is foolish and it is wrong for any of us in the church world to say, I'm secure in Jesus and I'm going to make it regardless of whether I keep trusting Him or not. I'm in love with the world. Love God. God, love Christ, that kind of like, ah, no, not really, but hey, I responded to an evangelistic service once, or many years ago, I did it a church service, and I was a member there for many years, and you know, I said the prayer, and I'm in, there's my security, but, but do, you, do you actively pursue Christ, are you vigilant and alert to what Satan wants to do to genuine Christians, which is steal their hope and their faith and their intimacy and their clinging to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that you? Do you fight that way in the midst of the community of Christ called the church? Well, no. I, I mean, I, do my, I, I believe my way. I, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's, He died for my sins. He's resurrected. But... No, 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 I'm fine. I'm just fine with this little part right here. No, do you listen to Jesus' words at all and ever get convicted and want to live in faith and repentance? No, but I don't need to because I said a prayer. It may be false assurance. But as we close this letter, it's been, I think, just about one year, Notice how glorious it is, believer. The promise in 
this passage to genuine believers who are fighting, persevering in faith and repentance is that they are secure and they cannot lose their salvation. They will not be devoured, chewed up by the roaring lion. The good news that comes with the command, resist the devil, firm in the faith, is that, genuine believer, you will make it. You will make it through the trials and through the tribulations and through the pains and through the waning of your heart and your faith. You'll make it. Because you fight. Because you resist. Because you're awake. And therefore, the one who says, I have eternal security. I don't need to resist the devil firm on my faith. It would be nice if I did. I'll be a disciple. I don't need to do that. That person is contradicting God and throwing away the right to have a biblical assurance of their salvation. Because those who are called by God don't do that. They fight. They resist. They fight to keep their affections and their heart clinging to the truth of the Gospel and the person of Jesus and the Heavenly Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be According to Peter, in chapter 1, verse 3, born again persons. And so, look, verse 10 shows us now where our confidence, our assurance of salvation is to rest. Not by getting away the, I don't have to resist Him. You resist Him and resist Him and you fight. And now verse 10 says to you, and after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Here's a promise in the bosom. Pull it out. In the, especially in the midst of your pain and suffering. He will, not maybe, He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The promise, notice, is that if God called you to His glory, He will absolutely get you there to future glory. The meaning of being a Christian is that God has worked the miracle of new birth. In other words, He has, another biblical term, called you to Himself, His eternal glory. And He'll get you there. Right here, this is Peter's way of saying exactly what the Apostle Paul said. As I turn to Romans chapter 8. When Paul writes, just hear the words. Don't let them be too familiar that we don't hear them. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good. Stop. The lion roars. Suffering, persecutions, setbacks, bad marriages, children going astray, financial reversals, death, stuff comes to destroy your faith. But he says, we know that for those who love God, all those things work together for good. That, that is, for those who are called according to His purpose. He's not done. Here's Paul's idea of this whole Christian life. From Christian's conversion to the King's Highway to all the troubles he gets until he entered the celestial city. He says, this is why we say verse 28, verse 29, 30. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. And, and, and he, whom He predestined to be conformed to Jesus, those He also called. And whom He called, every one of them, He also justified. That means they've been brought to faith. And if He's brought you to faith, to love Christ, whom He's justified, these He also glorified. That's future still. But it is just as set as the day you have been born again. Paul's saying there are no dropouts here. There's all kinds of dropouts in the church world. But there are no dropouts of genuine born again people. And Peter just simply says, the one who called you to His glory will get you there after you have suffered for a little while. I mean, it's, I, I am, I'm stopped. I've got to stop. I'm just... It is really hard to be an expository preacher sometimes. Not because... The texts are def, def, you know, difficult. Some texts are just so easy. But to actually say what it says. <laughs> because I think of people who suffered in a way I can't imagine, and I feel what you feel. I don't know if I can make it. I mean, what, what, what just happened to me right there? All of a sudden, I just thought of, most of you know Johnny Erickson Tata. And I feel like if she were here, I, okay, I've got to stop. I need you to come up and I need you to read the text. And she would be happy to. Because she's held on to this text for 40 years since she snapped her neck and has been a quadriplegic. She would read, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you, Johnny, to His eternal glory in Christ, He will. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So Peter is saying to us, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, this is a promise. And if we don't get it yet, he puts in verse 11. Notice the apostles so often 
and given these glorious doxologies. It's a word because of doxa, the word glory. Say to God be the glory. Yeah, okay. But he didn't do that here. He uses a different word. So we don't miss it. To Him in all of this life. To Him be the dominion. The absolute control. The sovereign ability and power over all things. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's rest in that promise. In the midst of life, keep in your bosom when everything else you can't find those texts, scripture, truths, experiences of God's faithfulness, keep here. After you've suffered a little while, you don't know why, and you want to get out, and that's okay, and we pray that way, God says, I will restore you. I'll confirm you. I will establish you. All dominion is mine. And it is with that we obey the text. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Be awake. Satan is real. He's out to destroy you. And especially in your pain, setbacks, and when life doesn't go the way we like it, He's there to cause you not to trust God, but to scream, you don't care. And Peter says, resist that. Let us then just continue to ponder, draw close to the Lord as we are singing these precious words in Christ alone. In Him we put our hope, in Him we trust. His glorious promises purchased by His death and His resurrection. Amen.